Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. If, you're, uh, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, let me encourage you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to see you here with us this morning, and um, we're going to study the Word of God together. A few years ago, in the wake of the Houston Astros cheating scandal, may we never forget, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred called the World Series trophy, quote, a piece of metal. Men weeping in the streets, children fainting. Women crying inconsolably. Rob Manfred brought a scourge upon the name of Roberts everywhere when he uttered that phrase. You see, no matter what a person says or does, we always know that there there is a heart that is still lurking underneath it. We know that, that no matter what a person may, how a person may portray themselves or present themselves, deep down inside, there are desires, there are ambitions, there are goals. Maybe they don't even think the World Series trophy matters a whole lot. And, and that, the, the heart of a person, is really what, what defines that person. It, it's what gives rise to everything else in a person's life. Our passage today in Matthew's Gospel uh, has a, an, an interesting narrative in which Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees who think that they have caught him in some sort of a, some sort of a trap. And so I want to read this story for us and, and explore it together with you. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Uh, There's a clear rebuttal here that Jesus offers to the Pharisees. I want to pause as we read this to make sure you see this. They come to Jesus with a question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus' response is so unbelievably pointed. He says to them, why do you break the commandment of God? It's, I mean, if, if you had been there, if you had been one of the people witnessing this, you would have audibly gasped, <gasps> you know, because what Jesus has said is so directly in their face. 
It is so blatantly a contradiction of what they have just said. The idea for the Pharisees is that unclean hands lead to unclean food, which leads to an unclean person. Picking up in verse 10, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Can you just imagine? It's just a funny, it's a funny picture, you know? Peter, some of the other disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, you, did you know you kind of hurt their feelings? What you said did not, they were not pleased with that. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And so Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart... And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let me, let me pray for us before we consider this further. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, and we ask that by your spirit you would help us to better understand it so that we might serve you faithfully, so that we might follow you with joy, uh, that we would follow you in a way that is pleasing to you and therefore life-giving and pleasing to us. Father, bless our time as we consider your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's really one main idea of this story, I think it might be something like this. Keeping up appearances is no substitute for being holy. In fact, you, it might actually serve to mask a lack of holiness if, if all you are about is the appearance of holiness. You've heard the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, which is not, not really the case. In fact, often that truth... Or, or rather, often cleanliness is subbed in for godliness. This story, though, it fleshes out implications of two approaches to God. Two approaches to God, which, which I would define or kind of summarize here as, on the one hand, cleanliness, and on the other hand, cleanness. Now, what do I mean by these terms? Because neither one of them is really found explicitly in this text, but I think I think the idea for both of them is, is really what's at stake here. Uh, cleanliness is certainly where the Pharisees fall. Cleanness, though, is often, the way we use it today, is often used for how we might describe aesthetics. You know, we would say about an architectural design, oh, it's got clean lines, or, or, or this is clean. In other words, it's neat in appearance. That, that's typically what we mean today when we describe something being clean or when we talk about cleanness, but the biblical idea has much more to do, in fact, it has everything to do with purity before the Lord. It's not so much the consequence of sin like guilt would be. 
but rather an idea that really goes beyond that. It transcends that. It, it talks about really the whole person. It's a, it's a constant reminder of our fallen, unworthy state before the Lord in and of ourselves. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, there are a lot of laws that have to do with sacrifices for sin, but then there are also laws that have to do with purification because of people's uncleanness. I think sometimes people get confused because they read of these passages about uncleanness and they assume that somebody is guilty for sin because of their uncleanness. And when you read about some of these things that make a person unclean, you think, well, that doesn't really seem like a sinful thing. That doesn't necessarily seem all that wrong. And the point of these passages and of these laws distinguishing between guilt for sin and uncleanness is that there are some things, sins, that people commit against the Lord or fail to obey him in some way or other that are offensive to God in a sinful way. Whereas with the uncleanness, there is really a natural state of mankind this side of the fall in which none of us really can present ourselves before the Lord without some sort of purification from him. And that's what's at stake when we talk about cleanness, when we talk about somebody being clean before the Lord. It has to do with ritual purity before God, or, or rather, in the case of uncleanness, being ritually impure. The likely origins of this Pharisee's tradition probably come from the book of Exodus, chapter 30, looking at verse 17 through 21. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Aaron and his sons being the priestly line that mediates between God and his people Israel. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And so this cleansing meant for the priests was necessary for the cleanness of Israel's representative before God. Aaron and his sons are about to go before the presence of God Almighty, dwelling in the midst of Israel. You don't just walk in in jeans and a t-shirt. You got to be ready. There's a cleanness that you need to possess. Unfortunately, because Aaron and his sons are still fallen men, they need to be purified repeatedly to go before the presence of the Lord. And they do this not just for themselves, but because as the priests of Israel, they represent God's people before the Lord. If Aaron can't go before the Lord to intercede, no one gets to be interceded for. This is a glimpse of the cleanness that is needed for all of God's people. But it's obviously not very practicable for every Israelite to wash him or herself and then walk before the presence of the Lord in the middle of the camp. And so there are these priests that do this. This is more symbolic, though, than anything. It's, it's not, therefore, the ultimate solution. And, and what has happened here with the Pharisees is that they have taken this standard for divine access to God, and they've really diminished it to, to little more than virtue signaling among themselves and among the people of Israel who's, who's in, who knows the secrets and can, can go before the Lord just in general. There's no, 
There's no priestly line doing these sort of things at this point. The Pharisees have taken this and they have they've really, you could say, made a mockery of what the original intent and purpose of this law was. And so instead of heartfelt obedience to God, the Pharisees offer man-made traditions that are measurable, visible, and I think this is really important, within their natural grasp. This system that they adhere to and want everyone else to adhere to, you notice that it is personally beneficial to them, often at the expense of others, this willingness to go with man-made laws over against the commands of God. Jesus mentions one very striking example where the Pharisees apparently taught and and exhibited in their own lives this tendency to ignore the, the command, one of the ten, to honor parents they say, we don't have to do that if you, you set aside some money that's really for the Lord's purposes and glory. You, you can actually use that money for yourself. And, and if your parents come asking for help with their power bill, you can tell them. In fact, you should tell them that you cannot help them. Jesus says, no, what you're doing is you're taking this man-made commandment and tradition of yours, and you're elevating it over the word of God. But you see how, how it actually benefits the, the Pharisees. Not only is it personally beneficial, but it is also detrimental to their own souls. Because by living this way, the Pharisees are are self-deceived. And anyone who follows in this line is self-deceived, thinking that they are right with God when, in fact, they are very far from him. So this passage gives us really, I think, two approaches to God, or maybe you could say two value systems to ways of living, to, to, to virtues that you can hold to. The Pharisees value cleanliness, but Christ values cleanness. And this is, this is worth exploring. This is really, the, really two points here. When, when, cleanliness is, when cleanliness is your highest virtue, what does that look like? What does it look like in the lives of these Pharisees and in, and in our own lives when we value cleanliness above all? I think there are a few things. There's probably plenty more that we could say, but, but I've sort of boiled it down into a few things here. One is that you'll defer to the traditions of men over against the word of God. You'll defer to the traditions of men over against the word of God when cleanliness is your highest virtue. For the Pharisees... Tradition outweighed commandments. But you notice, you notice about Jesus' response that he doesn't reject tradition outright. That, that's not necessarily the issue. The problem, according to Jesus, is that their traditions trump the word of God. That, that is the crux of the issue. That's the problem. I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I want you to notice as I'm reading this passage, there's this kind of comparison that's being brought out here between um, what we could say is, is maybe myth or tradition and truth and doctrine. In fact, the words truth and doctrine you're going to hear a few times in this passage. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy here in this letter, is, is encouraging him to be, to be very clear about what the truth of the gospel is, what the truths of God's word are, especially in light of the traditions and myths and legends that have crept into Timothy's church from those who are eager to bring in other things to make sure that all of the people in this church are adhering to them. And Paul says, look, no, no, you, you, need to, you need to back up. You need to see the bigger picture. You need to see the truth of the Lord and what he values and, and value those things and, and, and not add on additional weights that are not meant to be carried by God's people. Now, I think this works itself out in, in a lot of ways in the life of any local church. Uh, I, I think sometimes it looks like judging where people shop uh, while failing to set our own hearts on the things of God? Or maybe weighing politics and voting records more than a person's spiritual vitality? Maybe you look at how a person dresses or the translation of the Bible that they prefer. These are all things that, that we can wield in a way that is truly unhelpful and actually contradictory to the core truth of the gospel. And instead, we, we mask ourselves with these sort of uh, facades of holiness, or we expect others to do the same, and, and we fail to see if they're, if they're even walking with the Lord at all, if they're being attentive to the Lord at all. Ask yourself, what sort of things scandalize you? And then ask, does, this, does the Bible speak to this directly? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we can't be scandalized by implications of doctrine. Right? Don't, don't misunderstand me. There are plenty of things that Christians ought to look into the world and see as, as clearly wrong or unbiblical, even though the Bible doesn't maybe explicitly state it the way that we would have it say it. But the, the point is, the further we get from Scripture, the more we are veering into the realm of the conscience. And when we start to foist our conscience upon other people as if this is now the standard of holiness, we're veering into the territory of the Pharisees here in, in this passage. Okay, so if first of all we know that you will defer to the traditions of men over the word of God when you value cleanliness above all else, another thing that I think is true is that you'll emphasize hands more than hearts if you value cleanliness above all. It's a sort of skin-deep holiness. And this is the very essence of legalism or Phariseeism. And why is this? 
Why, why is it that, that people tend to, to divert their attention to these more superficial ways of discerning if somebody is walking with the Lord in holiness? Well, I think there's a relative ease, control, um, security, kind of self-assuredness that comes with, with washing your hands, right? That's something that you can do yourself. It's something that you can control. It's something that maybe you can even be really good at. It's something that you can look into the lives of others and clearly see if they're doing that or not. The Pharisees look to Jesus' disciples. They just start scarfing down food. And we can talk about their hygiene and table manners all day. But the Pharisees notice this, and that's their trigger for whether or not these men are holy and clean before the Lord. There's a self-assuredness that comes with hand-washing, but when it comes to heart change, okay, that, that's difficult. That requires nuance. That requires work, labor, patience with yourself, with other people. Heart change doesn't just happen overnight, and it certainly cannot be manufactured or, or pretended. The Pharisees, and I think many of us, are, are, are sometimes easily satisfied. We, we settle for the appearance of holiness without the content of holiness. And so that's why I think hand-washing is such a potent example here. It's got biblical language. They can even maybe point to Exodus 30 and say, clearly there's a biblical precedent for this sort of thing. If the priest should have done this, why not all of God's people? Let's all do this very thing. And, and it's coupled with just the weight of, of years and years of tradition. This is what we do. This is what we've always done. In fact, it seems kind of intuitive the more you think about it, right? Oh, okay, well, if you've got clean hands and then you pick up food, well, that food is going to still be clean. And then you, you know, stuff it down your gullet and then all your insides are going to stay clean, right? Whereas if you pick up dirty food, you know, eat something off the ground and you put it in, okay, then your insides are going to be dirty, Another aspect of this sort of focus on cleanliness is that we'll focus on avoiding sin rather than uprooting sin. See, sin to be avoided is external, and temptations come from the outside. But sin to be uprooted, when you think of sin as something that needs to be uprooted, you understand that it is internal, and that temptations more often than not arise from within. In some ways, this is kind of the question about nature versus nurture, right? Okay, well, you know, is, is a person this way because of just who they are, or is it because of external forces that have maybe molded them and changed them and forced, this in, forced them into this pattern of living? You know, Jesus talks about things coming out of the heart versus what the Pharisees seem to emphasize is what goes into the mouth. This is a common pitfall. I just As I think about this, I mean, there's, there's so many ways we could apply this. And what, what makes it tricky is that a lot of this does depend a lot on, on our conscience and how we perceive things and how we apply and interpret and understand what Scripture says about any given issue. And so I think there's a wide range of how this can apply. But as I think about one area in particular, I think this is a really common pitfall for parents, especially parents of younger children. 
where, where the virtue, the, the value, the, the emphasis is oftentimes on having well-rounded kids or, or well-behaved children, but failing to, to examine and consider and shepherd their hearts. So, and so your kids can sit well at a restaurant. You guys remember COVID and how, uh, that was a joke. You guys remember it? Some of you do. Uh, for my family, we, we didn't eat anywhere uh, outside of our home for, for a long time. And when we finally did, it was as if, my children aren't in here, are they? No, they're not. Okay. I'm not slandering them. This is true. It was as if we had brought cavemen into the world for the first time. What is this? Do I eat this? No, that's a menu. It tells you what you could eat if we were going to stay here, but now we're going home because we can't be here anymore. This was a mistake. We can value the appearance of, of goodness and holiness and behavior and all of these things in our children and yet still neglect the heart that is really going to be the driving force behind all that they do and say and think. I, I, I hear people talk a lot about letting their children sort of like feel their feels, you know. Like, oh, they, they, he's got big feelings, you know, as he screams and throws himself onto the floor and loses his mind, you know, and it's just, well, you know, commiserate with him. Um, but I think sometimes that, that mentality it shows little regard for what those feelings actually say about their hearts and whether that actually needs to be tended to. Right? It, it, it's okay to tell your children, it's okay to tell yourself Hey, you know what? The way that I'm feeling about something, this is, this is actually ridiculous and wrong. Right? Because the truth of the gospel, it supersedes all of these things. The, the truth of God, who is our creator, he, he demands of us an allegiance to him that goes beyond whether or not we feel like it. Right? And so even as we care for one another, as we care for children, if you happen to have them, I think there's a real importance here on remembering that there is a heart that, that is beneath and beyond and, and really upholding all the external things that we, that we tend to see in the way people behave. Don't be more concerned about whether or not your child has ingested too much Red 40 and where they're going to college than, than whether or not you're, you're shepherding their heart in a way that that leads them to the Lord. What does Jesus call these, these Pharisees? Um, he calls them blind guides. Man, that is, a, that is a heavy appraisal, right? I mean, these men, they, they think of themselves as the leaders of the leaders. They think of themselves as the voice of God among his people. And Jesus says, these men cannot see, and they are leading other people who cannot see and what, what is the best case scenario for that? It is that they will fall into a pit. Right? The, the Lord will pull up the plants that he hasn't planted. What the Pharisees prized was zeal and piety, and, and it turns out that those things were actually a curse to them in the way that they had applied it. Well, let's consider what cleanness, or what it looks like when cleanness is your highest virtue. I'm trying to organize these things kind of in a parallel way with what we've said about cleanliness. 
When cleanness is your highest virtue, you'll submit from the heart to God's word. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Even laws about washing your hands. At the heart of it all, Jesus says, the right posture before the Lord has to do with giving the totality of your heart, your mind, your soul, even loving other people as your very self. There's no holding back, and it is all rooted in the heart, in the very core of a person's identity before God, not in these external things that we so often get get sucked into. When cleanness is your highest virtue, you'll emphasize the heart over hands for yourself and and for other people. I want to just take a moment, though, to to make a point here that just as I was studying this, it just kind of dawned on me um, how for a lot of people, the the uncleanness, and, and I think we can even use the word that's used here, the defilement that people feel, has often been, been exercised on them by someone else, right? Not exclusively, not all the time, but, but I want to just make this really clear. Um, when we're talking, when we talk about cleanness of the heart, when we talk about holiness before God, um, we're talking about the sin that we bear responsibility for. Um, not not the, the sins that have been committed against us, even, even grievous, heinous, wicked things. You hear me say that? I, I want to make sure you understand as I'm talking about this cleanness and, and sinfulness and how, could we can, how can we be made pure before the Lord. Just because something wicked has happened to you does not in itself make you unworthy of going before the Lord. Right? I just want to be clear about that. I think it is important, though, to recognize that, that externals, the, the rituals, the, the visible evidence that we might give, can reveal a person's internal state, though. Right? It's not to say that everything that is on the outside, that doesn't matter. It's really just what's on the inside. No, oftentimes what's, what we see of a person's life, what we see in our own lives, is a result of what is going on inside of us. That is true. The problem is that it's just really easy to be satisfied with externals and rituals because those are easier to measure. They're easier to see. They're easier to, to force upon other people. I want you to look at the list in verse 19. <clears throat> and it's interesting to me that this, this is the same gospel that has the Sermon on the Mount where much of this same idea is fleshed out there in chapters uh, 5 and 6 and so on. If you look at verse 19, he says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Uh, these are things that, that flow from the heart, as Jesus puts it. I mean, ask yourself this question. This, this is kind of extreme, but I think it's a good example. Uh, are, are you really innocent of murder if you just lack an opportunity to kill somebody? 
Is that, you know, if somebody, if you were watching on the news, you know, that uh, some, some horrible crime had been committed and you're sitting next to your friend and you're talking about this, oh, that's terrible, can you imagine? And you're, you're, the person sitting next to you is just like, yeah, no, I can't imagine doing that. I don't own a gun. Uh, you would be really troubled by that. And that would be troubling. Maybe some of you experienced that, I'm sorry. Uh, that would be troubling. Right, because the issue is, is not whether or not you have the means to do it. That's, that's like the final step. It's, it's the heart that gets you there. That's what, that's what you're concerned about. That's what makes it so troubling. That's what you want to avoid. Likewise, sexual immorality, adultery, theft, false witness, slander, all of these things, they begin in the heart long before any tangible steps are taken. And that, Jesus says, is the problem. And you think about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, look, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't look lustfully on anyone. Because that, that's really the issue. That's the issue underneath it all. If you've gotten to the point of adultery, you've, you've taken so many other steps to get there. Beginning in, in your heart. And that, that is the problem. The heart is the problem. Which is why when cleanness is your highest virtue, you'll focus on roots and not just fruits of uncleanness. Because internal desires reveal a person's true defilement or not before the Lord. James 1, 14 and 15 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and, when, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But you see where this begins. It doesn't begin with an external force acting on you, but rather, rather it begins with your own desire. And that's a tough pill to swallow. Because we live in an age where to question your own natural instincts and desires is is truly the, among the most grievous sins you can commit. To question somebody else's feelings about themselves or to question your own innate desires as if they might be wrong, that, that's a crime that, that, that cannot be punished enough. But it is important for us to assess our hearts. It's important for us to to consider other people's hearts and not just look for outward actions and appearances. This is why we need to seek heart change rather than behavior modification in ourselves, in one another, um, in our children, in our spouses. I want to point out, though, that, that there's a, there, this, this is a delicate thing. Uh, analyzing your heart Often another word that could be used for this would be introspection, right? Uh, it's possible, it's possible to, to analyze your heart in a way that, that is actually like idolatrous and, and, and very self-centered and self-oriented. Even if you just feel horrible and more and more horrible and just kind of bury yourself deeper and deeper under the weight of whatever it is that you see or think you see going on in your heart, there's a way to look at your heart that is really unproductive. I, I, I know that very well. And then there's a way to look at your heart when it is mediated by the gospel that, that actually combats the pride that makes you wallow in misery 
and instead look with hope to the, to the possibility of, of what Christ is doing in your life. And so, and so this final sort of point, I want to conclude with this. What is the solution for a defiled person, for somebody who rightly sees that they are unclean? And it's not just a matter of their hands being dirty, but it is a matter of their heart needing to be fixed before the Lord. The solution for a defiled person is a clean heart. Uh, Vijay read for us from Psalm 24, and I want to read a little bit from that psalm again for you here, starting in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I, I recognize I've been railing against this idea that, that we should focus on clean hands. And here God is saying that clean hands do matter. I'm not saying that clean hands don't matter. What I am saying is that those clean hands need to be rooted in, founded upon, established by a clean heart. And, and that clean heart only comes because of what the Lord does in a person's life. You understand that distinction? The clean hands here in Psalm 24 are more of a metaphor for purity and wholeness before God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Brothers and sisters, it is so important as we look at our hearts to remember that Jesus Christ himself took on our sins to be made unclean for us. That, that's the gospel. As, as you're reading this passage, it can be so easy to sit and kind of get stuck in, well, okay, what's my heart? What's going on with my heart? What's, am I too focused on external things and not enough looking at the, the heart of myself or, or those that I love? And we can really kind of bemoan our lack of ability to really do anything to change a person, let alone change ourselves. And yet our hope has always only ever been that Jesus himself would give us a heart of flesh, that he, that he would be the one to cleanse and purify us. All this hand-washing of the priest is unnecessary when Jesus is your priest. And he boldly walks in before the Lord on your behalf, if you are in him by faith, and he declares that you are clean before the Lord because he is clean. And so at the cross, he he willingly took on all that, that makes us unworthy of the Lord. And because he did that and died in our place, he imparts to us a cleanliness, not, not a cleanliness, a cleanness that surpasses anything, anything any of us can do for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin. You talk about eating a dirty hot dog. We're, uh, he, Jesus became sin. He, he didn't just take it on. He identified with our sin. He knew no sin. But he, but he was made to be sin so that in him we might become, not just have, become the righteousness of God. Or consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his uncleanness, you have been healed. You have been made clean. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what's the solution for an unclean heart? The solution is that you you should turn to Christ. If you're an unbeliever and you have never dealt with this head on, you need to turn to the Lord. He's your only hope. If you're a believer and you are weighed down with misery after misery looking in the mirror at yourself, you need to stop looking at yourself and you need to look to the Lord. You need to filter your view of yourself through the prism of the gospel. Jesus died to make you clean with the very cleanness that he himself is. Turn to Christ. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 tells a story. We won't read it, but it tells a story of a leper who comes before Jesus and, and says to him this. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. His leprosy wasn't a result of sin. This wasn't some sort of guilt that he needed help with. Rather, he says, I am unclean before the Lord, and there's nothing I can do about it. If you will, you can make me clean. I, I love Jesus' answer, and this is what I want you to be thinking about as we close. Jesus looks to him, and he simply says, I will be clean. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we need, we need, your, cle- we need your cleansing approval and, 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 and salvation for us. We, we do not have anything in and of ourselves that, that merits even an approach into your presence. There's just nothing we bring. We're desperate. We, we need cl- clean hands. We, we need clean everything, Lord. We, we are... We're lost and dead in our sins apart from Christ's gracious intervention. Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus who takes on, who took on our uncleanness that we might be made clean in your presence, that we might know you and come before you and revel in your glory through the work of your glorious son Jesus. Lord, help us to look to him. Help us to consider him and see not just our own hearts, but the hearts of others through the prism of the gospel that we might not despair of ourselves, that we might not find pride in what we can do, but that instead we would rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf and that we would point others to find cleanness and wholeness in him alone. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.